How many of you had a good Thanksgiving? We have so much to be grateful for, don't we? God has been so good to us, so good to us. Carol and I were just uh, talking the other day, reflecting back on all that's gone on in the last year. It's really amazing when you look backwards and into your life and the events that have gone by, transpired in the last 12 months. Sometimes you, at least I, maybe it's just a product of my age, but I begin to think, wow, that was only nine months ago or, you know, a year ago. It seems like it was forever ago. And so when you look back and you see all that has happened and all that God has brought you through in the last 12 months, the only thing you can do is fasten your seatbelt because you know that uh, the next 12 will be eventful as well. Our God is not through with us. He is very much actively involved in our lives, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And he is going to uh, knock off the rough edges, sand the rough spots, chisel us into that precise image. So by faith, I look forward to what's in store in the next 12 months. Open your Bibles to John chapter 19, please. John 19, we're going to finish what we began last week in this text. We're looking at verses 17 through 30. I've entitled this message, The Execution of Jesus. This is that section of John's narrative where he deals with the crucifixion. He does not give us all the details of the crucifixion account, nor do any of the gospel writers. They all add their unique perspective, and John adds his. And we will, for the most part, remain with John's perspective, not attempting to harmonize it all this morning for you. John is uh, very much concerned in, as he relates this account to us, in communicating one very central driving theme. And the theme that John wants to communicate is that God is absolutely sovereign through this whole event. That which is the greatest evil imaginable that the creature would rise up and attempt to slay the Creator. That the rebellion and hardness of men's hearts would be to such an extent that they would actually kill the Prince of Life. There is no more imaginable evil possible. Yet under the sovereignty of our God, this very evil is used of Him to bring about the greatest possible good. And that is the redemption of Adam's fallen race. So arguing from the major to the minor, what John would have us see from the text before us this morning as we work through it is that if God can do that and indeed planned to do that, as the scripture so clearly says, the crucifixion of Christ was no afterthought. It was from before the foundations of the earth. It is the very linchpin of the eternal plan of God. If God does that with the death of his own son, then the other events of life, those that are of lesser stature, evils of a smaller magnitude, then he most clearly will take and turn them to his glory and our good, right? Isn't that what the apostle says in Romans 8? This is the theological foundation for that. So as we look this morning at verses 17 through 30, there are three examples 
Three examples of God's sovereignty drawn from the execution of Christ. And we want to look at these so that we will understand and take comfort in the totality of his rule. Let me read the text for you. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write to the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Three examples that the apostolic writer gleans for us from that account. By the way, a, a first-hand account, John standing there at the cross, if not through the whole event, certainly through uh, a good part of that event, John narrating what he saw with his own eyes. He will continue to say that a little bit later on. He will say, I was an eyewitness testimony. So John is relating what he saw for us, and he is doing it, as I said, with a theological purpose in mind, and that is to demonstrate the sovereignty of God through this event. Three examples that he gives for us, the first being the crucifixion itself in verses 17 through 22. Now, we spoke at length about that last week. I'm not going to replow all that ground for you, but just to get you up to speed, let me remind you a little bit about what's going on here. Jesus has been taken out, verse 17, as is Roman custom, he has been paraded through the city by the longest possible route to take him to the place of crucifixion. The reason they have done that is to make an example of him to all who would look on that effectively crime does not pay. And so he will carry his cross again, very common, nothing unusual about that. He will bear at least part of the cross, perhaps the cross member, maybe the whole uh, cross itself, we're not sure, but at least part of it he will bear on his own shoulders with a placard outlining his crime for all to look on. 
They will see the placard. It will outline his crime. They will look upon this poor, pitiful victim on his way to the most agonizing and painful deaths imaginable, and they will conclude in their mind, crime does not pay. The Romans were very, very big on law and order. And so that's the event. Verse 17, Jesus is on his way out. We learn from the other Gospels that because of his weakness, the exhaustion, the the beatings that he's had, the loss of blood, that he is so exhausted when he reaches the city gates, he collapses and the Romans impress a person coming into the city for the feast, Simon of Cyrene, to take Jesus' cross and carry it the rest of the way. Jesus is also crucified between two robbers, two murderers, two insurrectionists, further humiliating him all by Pilate's design. Pilate has been tormented by the Jews, as we pointed out over the last few weeks. They have manipulated him to get what they want from him, and this is Pilate's sweet revenge. He has been forced into the corner where he has crucified someone he knows to clearly be an innocent man, someone that he is reasonably convinced is of some kind of divine personages in his own pagan understanding, not quite sure of it all, but he has been pushed into the corner to crucify this man under the felonious charge that he claimed to be king of the Jews, something Pilate is absolutely convinced is ludicrous, that this poor pitiful creature could not possibly be a pretender to the Roman throne. And so he exacts his sweet revenge. And that is that the charge against Jesus, verse 19, look at it. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And Pilate is mocking the Jewish authorities by doing this. They have claimed we have no king but Caesar. Pilate knows that is an out-and-out lie, that is hypocrisy of the highest level, that they have no allegiance to Rome, yet they were willing to claim allegiance to Rome in order to crucify this innocent man. The very people who stood there in the courtyard of the praetorium had cried out, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And so Pilate now is going to have his revenge. And his revenge is to put on the placard the crime for which this person is being crucified is that he is king of the Jews. King of the Jews. His hatred of Judaism and all that it represents, the the troublesome, ungovernable people that they have proved to be, comes out in this fit of vengeance by taking and putting upon the placard of the man that he will shortly have crucified, king of the Jews. Here is your king. Take a good look at him. We know, by the way, that his, his attempt hits home when we look in verse 21. Go ahead, let your eyes just go back down to that text. And notice that the chief priests of the Jews are saying to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. He has hit home. They are, they are perturbed that he would put this charge above his head. They want the charge to read that he claims to be king of the Jews, and therefore he is a pretender to the throne, therefore he is being crucified. And Pilate, of course, says, What I have written, I have written. Translated, forget it. You're out of luck. I'm not going to change the sign. Okay? How does it feel to have the dagger twisted a little? Pilate, in his malice towards the Jewish authorities, his his bitter hatred of them serves the sovereign purposes of God. And he serves it 
by placing a sign upon the head of Jesus that declares the reality of who he is. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Amen. Notice, by the way, in um, verse 20, that Pilate has this declaration written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Jesus is crucified just outside the city walls along a common uh, route into the city. And therefore, all coming and going from Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, which is the great festival of Judaism, when there's pilgrims coming in from all over the world, some speaking only Greek, others Aramaic or Hebrew, the local language. And, and then for the Gentile officials, Latin, the governmental language of Rome, And there, in all of the tongues of mankind, it is declared the reality that his son is king of the Jews. It's incredible. Jesus said himself over in John 12, verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw, what? All men to me. All men to me. Jesus is being lifted up, beloved. He's been lifted up in crucifixion, which over in John 12, it says that's exactly what he's referring to. And the declaration of his great glory, that which to the to the eye of the unfaithful looks like his greatest humiliation is indeed his greatest exaltation. He is being lifted up upon the Christ, accomplishing or the cross, accomplishing the redemption of mankind. And that reality is being declared to all who have eyes of faith to see. That's the way God works. That's the way God works. He takes evil and turns it to good. You can read it through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Our God reigns. And he reigns even in the moment of the death of his own son. And that leads us to our second example. Our second example appears in verses 23 through 27. And this example is what I call the crowd. It is the example of the crowd. There are actually two groups of people that appear here in John's narrative at the foot of the cross. Two groups of bystanders. And and John plays them off one against the other. And he shows in, this, in these two groups of people, again, the sovereignty of God, how God is absolutely at control, in control and absolutely at work in what he is doing. So let's look at the first group. By the way, there are four in each group just because it makes for nice, uh, you know, uh, balance and symmetry in it all. So there are four, uh, four individuals in each of the two groups. The first group in verse 23 is the soldiers. It is the soldiers. Verse 23, the soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments, made four parts, part to every soldier, four soldiers, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless and woven in one uh, one piece. Again, very customary. Nothing unusual going on here at all. It was the standard custom of Rome that the soldiers that attended to a crucifixion would receive as sort of an added perquisite that they would receive the clothing and belongings of the victim. All very, very common. And so as soldiers, what they get is the clothes of the, of the person they crucify. And the reason they do that is because they crucified them naked. And the reason they did that was to further humiliate them. Clothing, beloved, have been given by God to cover our shamefulness, Right? 
our nakedness that, uh, according to Genesis uh, 2, they were naked and unashamed prior to the fall. But after the fall, nakedness is always associated with shame. And so to strip a person naked is a means of humiliation. A means of humiliation. And so that is part of what they're doing here to the Christ. They are humiliating him. And so the soldiers, as I say, there's common for them to get the, the victim's clothing as payment for services rendered. Now, evidently, they, uh, they decide to use lots or dice to, to go about the dividing of the clothing into four parts. Okay, that's what it says, verse 23, right? Made four parts. Probably his sandals, his belt, his cloak, and his head covering. Those would be the standard four pieces of clothing that they would get from Christ, from the victim. And they are not of equal value, and so it's reasonable to assume they cast lots even for them too. Maybe not, but it seems to me that that's the way the text kind of unfolds. So they roll the dice to see who gets his sandals, who gets his belt, who gets his cloak, and who gets his head covering. But they come to his tunic. Now, the tunic was worn next to the skin, not like undergarments that you and I would wear, more like a suit of clothes, more like a suit of clothes, okay? So what they're, they're not gambling for his underwear, okay? Put that notion out of your mind. They are after his inner set of clothes, and these were, uh, this particular garment evidently had some value. Notice again, take a look. It says that it was seamless, woven in one piece, verse 23. That indicates that there is some value associated with it. It, was, it took the work of a weaver to be able to weave this one-piece garment that would fit Jesus. I think perhaps it was a gift from one of the wealthy, wealthy patrons who supported his ministry. I can't prove that, but it just seems logical to me. Jesus himself having no place to lay his head and no earthly wealth. But this tunic, they don't want to tear it. If they tear it, they make four rags. And who wants a rag? Okay, it's just not that valuable. And so they, they cast lots for this. They, they uh, roll the dice in order to see who gets the sort of the fifth piece of clothing. Verse 24, right? They said, therefore, to one another, let's not tear it, let's not ruin it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. Very common. Everything going on here, very run-of-the-mill, very customary. Nothing unusual about it, unless you have eyes of faith. See, with eyes of faith, there is something very unusual about it, and that is that little do these unconcerned Roman soldiers know, but they are working out the divine plan of God. That which has been laid down by the Creator in an ancient Jewish prophecy of a thousand years before is now coming to pass. David, the great king and, and um, psalmist of Israel, in Psalm 22, verse 18, prophesy this very event. Notice what John says. They do this that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Do you see it? John very clearly associates the activities of these soldiers and in particular the gambling activity of these soldiers to the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy. Now, when David wrote Psalm 22, he was in some kind of physical distress. 
physical distress and emotional distress. He was being mocked by his enemies and, and apparently using the symbolism of, a, of an execution, David laments the condition in which he is and he calls out to God for his deliverance. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are David's words in Psalm 22, the very words that Jesus takes to his own lips, right? A little bit earlier on the same afternoon of the crucifixion. So Jesus himself identifies this as a messianic prophetic psalm. And John sees the linkage. John sees the linkage. And in fact, he is very concerned, beloved. I want you to see this in the text. Not just in verse 24 where it says that the scripture might be fulfilled, but let your eyes drop down to verse 25 where it says, therefore the soldiers did these things. Do you see that? Bracketing it like like, um, bookends. John wants you to see that this is not something random. This is not something common. This is not just an occurrence. This is, in fact, the working out of the divine and sovereign plan of God. So bracketing, they divided my outer garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. He says, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 25, therefore, the soldiers did that thing. It's not a coincidence. That's what he's communicating. There's no coincidence here at all. It is God actively involved down to the most minute details. It is the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy. Beyond that, we move to the second group. Notice um, verse 25 there, the but. Do you see that? Contrast here. In contrast to the unconcerned soldiers acting out as their barbaric plan, in in contrast to that, we have a group of ladies standing there at the cross. The soldiers are coolly profiting from that which is so mundane to them, the, the crucifixion of these individuals. Yet at the same time, there's these four ladies standing there, tragically, standing at the foot of the cross, looking on, unable to comprehend what their eyes are seeing. All their hopes, all their dreams, all their messianic expectations crushed the crucifixion of Christ. Yet they are drawn to Him like a a moth to the flame. They cannot turn away and hide their sight from that which is gross, that which is vile, that which is, is ugly, even pornographic. They must stare at it. Their eyes are drawn to it because it is the one they love. And so they stand there at the cross. Meanwhile, the 11 disciples, right, or 10 of the 11, are gone. Nowhere to be seen. They have fled the scene. They are in hiding. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, Jesus said. And that's indeed what has happened here. But these ladies, they are there at the cross. Now, John gives us uh, two names. And then he describes two of them by their family relationship. Do you see it here? Verse 25. At the foot of the cross by Jesus was his mother and his mother's sister. Those two are described by family relationship. And then there is Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, if we were to look to, uh, to the uh, parallel accounts, we can figure out uh, clearly his mother. We know who her name is, right? It is. That's it. Good. You're following along. Okay, so that is Mary. So now we know three of the four. And so all we need to do is a little detective work. We can figure out who the fourth one is, and it's worth the effort. Over in Mark 15, verse 30, don't look, just pencil it down. 
she is given a name. Her name is Salome. Okay, so Mark 1540 supplies the name of this fourth woman. Her name is Salome. And if you were to go to Matthew 27, verse 56, it supplies a little more information about her. She's, we're told there she's the wife of Zebedee. The wife of Zebedee. Now, Zebedee is the father of John and James, the apostles. Okay, so it is Jesus and his mother, John and his mother, and these two other ladies standing there. That, by the way, makes John the first cousin of Jesus. Okay, John is Jesus' first cousin. And that's important to know because that plays into what just goes on next. Here is Christ upon the cross. He has been been bloodied and beaten to a pulp. The life is ebbing from him. It'll only be a, a matter of a, of a short while before he will actually uh, die. It's been excruciating. The energy has been drained out of him. And yet he still is absolutely sovereignly both in control and concerned for his mother. Do you see that? Verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. By the way, John always refers to himself by that name, the disciple whom he loved. John, by the way, and just kind of a sidelight here for you, he never identifies himself by name. He never identifies his brother James by name. And in this text, he doesn't identify his mother by name either. Always as the disciple Jesus loved. It's like John never got over the fact that Jesus loved even me. He was amazed that Jesus loved him. And so here they are, John and Jesus' mother standing there, and Jesus speaks. He speaks to his mother, and he says, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, verse 27, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Jesus was concerned for Mary. He's dying, beloved. You know, most the, the, the historians write that most men, when they were crucified, would, would expend their final breaths in, in cursing and blaspheming and, and spitting on their tormentors to the extent they were able, just lashing out. Here is Jesus expiring here, having suffered the very wrath of God for the sins of his people poured out upon him. And yet in that devastated condition, he has concern for his Mother. And it's not just concern for her, by the way, as a mother alone. Don't think it's only because he, you know, he loves his mother as, as most of us do. No, it's deeper than that. It's concern for her, not just for her physical relationship to him as a mother, but it's, it's far deeper than that. It's his concern for her as a disciple, as a vulnerable disciple. And so he acts on her behalf here. It's kind of a last bit of, of of earthly interaction that will go on now most believe and i think appropriately so that joseph her husband had died some point prior to this we don't know exactly when but i believe at some point during his three-year public ministry that joseph died but in any case joseph is off of the scene and that leaves mary as a widow and widows in the first century beloved were the were the were the poor among the poor 
There were no life insurances. There were no retirement plans, 401k, stock options, or any of the other. Then there were no governmental assistance programs. So there was nothing to provide. For a widow, if she had not the means laid aside by her family to support her, she would have nowhere to go and no place to turn. Her options were prostitution or starvation. And so to care for a widow was the, was the height of piety within the Jewish community and indeed within the first century church. The care for the widow is close to the heart of God. You can't read the Old Testament without knowing that. And so Jesus is acting out in care for her, not just as his mother, but as a widow. And not just as a widow, but as a disciple of his. Now, he could have entrusted her to her brothers or his brothers, right? Jesus was the eldest, but he had several other brothers. They certainly could have and and by custom should have taken her into their homes. He was the eldest son, his responsibility, but he's about to die. And so he could have easily handed her off and said, Mom, go, go spend some time with your brother, you know, with my brother, Josie, live in his home. He will care for you. But Jesus doesn't do that. He hands her instead to his first cousin, John. Why? Why John? Why not his brothers? The answer is, according to John's gospel, chapter 7, verse 5, his brothers are unbelievers. At this point, his brothers still do not believe. And so Jesus is concerned for Mary. As I said, beyond just her her earthly temporal care, he's concerned for her as a disciple, as a, a follower of his, and he wants her to be in a fellowship and in a community where she will be encouraged spiritually. And so to leave her in the hands of unbelieving brothers is just not an option for him. And so he entrusts her into the care of his first cousin, John. Now, the scriptures tell us, by the way, Acts 1, 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that Jesus' brothers do become believers. And in fact, one of them writes uh, the book of James. And so there is uh, the family does come around. But but there at the foot of the cross, Jesus entrusts Mary to John. No suffering of Christ, no No pain, no trial, no matter how excruciating, could cause him to forget the needs of his people. And beloved, that applies to you and me. That applies to you and me. I mean, sometimes in the the midst of our own suffering, right? Our own pain, the, the hardship of our own circumstances, we might say, well, where is God in all this? Where is he? Does he really care about me? Is he too busy running the universe to notice my problem? Can he really do anything about this anyway? John answers these questions. He gives us very direct answers right here in this vignette. God is powerful, beloved. So powerful that soldiers... Gambling for clothing and according to ancient custom. John says they had to do this in order to fulfill the very prophets who had written a thousand years before. Do you see what that means? That means God was so powerfully and intimately involved in the circumstances right down into the lives of these pagan Roman soldiers that the very actions that they took, the very act of gambling itself, they had to do. Look again at the text, verse 25 in the beginning. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. They must have done these things. They had no choice but to do these things. They must fulfill the prophecy. 
God is powerful. Powerful enough in the circumstances of the crucifixion of His own Son and powerful enough in the circumstances of your life to bring about His plan. To bring about His plan. And beyond that, He is compassionate. Amen? He is concerned. He does care. He's not so occupied with carrying the universe on His shoulders, so to speak, that He has no time for you. He is concerned about your life. And from the cross, Jesus reaches out and cares for one of his own. The writer of the Hebrews emphasizes this truth for us in chapter 4 and in verse 16. And he says there that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Beloved, that's a promise for you and me. If we are the children of Christ, if we are the followers, the disciples of Jesus Christ, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We can come to God with the problems of our lives and we can call out to Him, Abba, Father, Daddy, help me. And we know that He both has power and interest in meeting our needs. That's confidence building. That's encouragement. That bolsters your faith to hang on to hang on when you're laying in a hospital bed fighting off pneumonia with the tumor cancerous tumors spreading in your lungs how do you hang on you hang on by taking your anchor and fastening it within the veil the writer of the hebrew says by by firmly latching on to god almighty And knowing that He both cares and can do something about your circumstances. He was involved in the crucifixion of His Son. He is involved in your life too. And that leads us to our third example this morning. The third example. First, His sovereignty is shown in the crucifixion. Secondly, His sovereignty is shown in the crowd. Thirdly, His sovereignty is shown through the cry. Through the cry. Verses 28 to 30. After this, that is, after Jesus had taken care of the last bit of temporal earthly affairs, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. In the beginning, when they took Him out to the cross, the, there was a group of, of uh, Jewish widows who were ministers of mercy. And they would, by, by habit, by custom, they would go out and they would offer a mixture of wine mixed with myrrh, or, or gall rather, to, uh, to a crucifixion victim in order to dull the pain a little bit. And so they offer that to Jesus at the beginning and he rejects it. He turns it away. He will take no narcotic to in any way help him cope with the mission that lies before him. He goes to the cross wide-eyed and fully committed. But here... They offer him instead sour wine. Now, Jesus, it says, verse 28, he knows that everything has already been accomplished. The task has been done. He's just he's sort of cleaning up the last details, if I can even say it that way. He says, in order that the scriptures may be fulfilled, there's an unfulfilled scripture here that Jesus brings about to fulfillment. Now, I don't want you to think he's manipulating the circumstances because there is a reality here that he is thirsty. Dehydration was very much a side effect of crucifixion. It, 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 it prolonged and produced agony in the crucifixion victim. It was part of the torture. And so he acknowledges that, but his mind is so saturated in the Word of God that he says, I am thirsty. 
I am thirsty. And in the process, fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 21, where the prophet writes, For my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. He calls out and he says, I am thirsty. Perhaps not with much power to his voice. I kind of, I kind of imagine him saying, I'm, I'm thirsty. It's a, it's a rasp. His lips are by this time parched and cracked and bleeding. His body has suffered the effects of dehydration now. And he calls out and says, I am thirsty. And so verse 29, there is a, there is a jar of sour wine standing there. Oxos in the Greek. It's just, a, it's a common drink. It's, it's wine mixed with water, cheap wine mixed with water. And it, it was just a common beverage to quench the thirst of a soldier or a slave. And so if you like, there's a canteen of it sitting there. Not unusual at all. Here are these soldiers. They're sitting out doing guard duty over the crucifixion. It's a hot day. And so they have something to drink there. And they put a sponge, verse 29, a little sponge onto a small branch of hyssop. They dip it into the sour wine and they bring it to his mouth. They wet his lips, enabling to speak forth. And again, Luke's gospel tells us that he spoke forth with power his final words. John recording just one of them for us here. Verse 30, when Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said to Telestai, it is finished. It is finished. It is over. It is complete. It is done. All that I came to do has been accomplished. And he bowed his head, literally pillowing his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down, lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. It is finished. The work has been done. The redemption has been accomplished. The atonement has been given. The, the debt has been satisfied. And pillowing his head, he gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. What does it mean? It was finished. What was finished? What is Jesus Referring to. Well, a long, long time before. There is an ancient prophecy and recorded in Genesis, isn't there? That says that he shall strike you on the heel and you shall strike him upon the head, right? There in the garden, Adam, in disobedience to the words of his creator, took, took of the forbidden fruit and ate. Plunging him in his race into ruination. Sin becomes the common experience of all of his offspring. Beloved, that's us. You all have the, have the blood of Adam and Eve flowing in your veins. And with that, you carry the curse. That you are defiled before God. That sin dwells within you. The scripture says you can do no good thing. That doesn't mean you can't do anything temporally good. What it means is you can't do anything eternally good. You can do nothing to commend yourself before your creator. Do nothing to reverse the effect of the curse upon you. Do nothing to cause him to be favorably inclined towards you. You are ruined in your sin. Your wicked heart is darkened, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians. You are without hope in the world, alienated from God. 
you're under his wrath. And yet God sent a redeemer, didn't he? As the ancient prophecy predicted, there would be one come born of a woman, born of her seed, it says in Genesis 3, who would crush the serpent's head, who would restore the rightful dominion and rule of mankind to the world. That the world lies in the power of the evil one ever since that day that Satan is the ruler of this world. His kingdom has been smashed at the cross. The wall has been ripped wide open. There is a breach into the kingdom of darkness. And now the captives are being set free. They are being drawn out, pulled into the kingdom of light, rescued from darkness and enslavement to the evil one. It is finished. It is finished. The wall has been torn open. The atonement has been completed. There must be death for sin. Sin calls for death. In the day you eat of the fruit, you will certainly die. The wages of sin is death. Someone must die. Someone must die. And not for their own sin. If they are to be a redeemer, if they are to be a savior, if they are to atone for the, for the sin of others, then they must within themselves have the ability not to die for their own sin. That is, they must have no sin. And so the sinless one came. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the apostle says. He came into this world in order that people might have a life and might have it abundantly. He came to fulfill the law. And he lived perfectly before God. Perfectly. He challenged them and says, which of you can accuse me of sin and not a hand goes up? This is our redeemer. This is our bondsman. This is, this is our This is our Savior. And yet here he lies dying on a Roman cross. Dying for something he's never done. Poured upon him is the guilt and the burden of the sin of his people. It is finished. The Father has poured out his wrath upon him. He has suffered separation from God Almighty. The fellowship, the triune fellowship, that which is beyond our understanding within the mystery of the Godhead, stretching back to eternity past and eternity uh, future, if there is such a thing, eternity running in every direction. That, we, that eternal fellowship within the triune Godhead has been fractured on the cross when the sin and the guilt of mankind is poured on this one. Beloved, he drank the cup of the wrath of God to its dregs. He drained it. He he sipped it dry. He turned it upside down. You could shake it. Nothing would fall out. It was all consumed on the cross. He says it is finished. Tetelestai. It is done. There is no more work to do. Salvation is by grace through faith and not by works. There is nothing you can do to add to it. It is by the grace of God and grace only that we are accepted into His presence. It is by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it is by His death upon this cross, in your place. It is finished. It is finished. His righteousness, earned through His full and complete obedience to the law of God, becomes yours. When you embrace the sacrifice by faith, and your guilt 
And the wrath you rightly deserve is transferred to him, the apostle says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. It is finished. It is finished. It is done. It is done. He has rendered salvation a certainty. It is no longer a possibility. It is a certainty for his people. It is complete. It is finished. It is over. It is done. It is done. Beloved, behind me, there's a cross, right? There is a cross. It is our victory symbol. That which was the instrument of the most vile means of torturous execution ever devised by man becomes our victory symbol. It is not a place of mourning for us. It is a place of celebration. Amen. It is not a tragedy. The execution of Jesus Christ is not a tragedy. It is the linchpin of the very plan of God. It is the basis of our redemption. It is our acceptance before God. All that was wrong with us is poured onto Him and punished. And all that was right with Him is granted to us by faith. They meant it for evil. They hated Him. They despised him. They, they clamored for his death. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Earlier in this very same gospel, John writes, chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent... In the wilderness, even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Beloved, this is it. His crucifixion is our life. It is our life. Whosoever believes will in Him have eternal life. Do you believe? Do you believe? And how about you? Do you believe? Will you believe? Let's pray. God, our Father, only you could devise such a plan, such an amazing plan, that you would send your own Son to leave the throne room of glory and come to earth to die despicably at the hands of sinful men. Not as a tragedy but as a triumph. That the cross would be the means of His return back to the right hand of the Father, to the eternal glory which He left. And that in the process, He would bring many sons to glory. 
Our Father, we thank you for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that brought him to earth and held him to that cross. We thank you for the grace poured out on us so vile and wicked and undeserving. We thank you for the faith by which you've granted us the ability to embrace the truth of who Christ is and to know with certainty that by faith we have become beneficiaries of his sacrifice. Our Father God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Rivet us to the truth, the cross of Christ. Cause us to rejoice in it, to celebrate in it, to revel in it, to proclaim it with boldness from one end of this city to the other. Let it be not a piece of jewelry hung around our neck, but the very cornerstone of our own lives. And Lord God, drive home the reality of it to that person here this morning who is yet to understand their need for Christ, their need for His substitutionary death, their need to embrace it by faith, their need to turn from their sin and grab hold of Christ with both arms. Grant them faith to believe. Our Father, we pray. In the name of the one whose death assures our pardon, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.